Chapter Three, Part One of The Ordeal of Mark Twain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Ordeal of Mark Twain by Van Wyck Brooks. Chapter Three The Gilded Age. Part One. Quote, the American democracy follows its ascending march, uniform, majestic as the laws of being, sure of itself as the decrees of eternity. End quote. George Bancroft. You conceive this valiant spirit, the golden thread in his hands, feeling his way with a firmer grasp, with surer step through the dim labyrinth of that pioneer world he will not always be a pilot he is an artist born some day he is going to be a writer and what a magnificent nursery for his talent he has found at last in that brief sharp schooling he said once i got personally and familiarly acquainted with all the different types of human nature that are to be found in fiction biography or history when i find a well-drawn character in fiction or biography i generally take a warm personal interest in him for the reason that i have known him before met him on the river yes it ought to serve him well that experience it ought to equip him for a supreme interpretation of american life it ought to serve him as the streets of london served dickens as the prison life of siberia served dostoevsky as the civil war hospitals served whitman but will it only if the artist in him can overcome the pioneer those great writers used their experience simply as grist for the mill of a profound personal vision rising above it themselves they imposed upon it the mould of their own individuality can mark twain keep the golden thread in his hands long enough as a pilot he is not merely storing his mind with knowledge of men and their ways he is forming indispensable habits of mind self-confidence self-respect judgment workmanlike behavior he is redeeming his moral freedom but has he quite found himself has his nature had time to crystallize no and the time is up circumstance steps in and cuts the golden thread and all is lost the civil war with its blockade of the mississippi put an end forever to the glories of the old river traffic that unique career the pilot's career which had afforded mark twain the rudiments of a creative education came to an abrupt end nothing could be more startling more significant than the change instantly registered by this fact in mark twain's life what happened to him he has told us in the story of a campaign that failed 
that exceedingly dubious episode of his three weeks career as a soldier in the confederate army mark twain was undoubtedly right in feeling that he had no cause for shame in having so ignominiously taken up arms and a military title only to desert on the pretext of a swollen ankle the whole story simply reflects the confusion and misunderstanding with which especially in the border states the civil war began what it does reveal however is a singular childishness a sort of infantility in fact that is very hard to reconcile with the character of any man of twenty-six and especially one who a few weeks before had been a river sovereign the master of a great steamboat a worshipper of energy and purpose in short the mark twain we have just seen they met that amateur battalion in a secret place on the outskirts of hannibal and there says mr paine they planned how they would sell their lives on the field of glory just as tom sawyer's band might have done if it had thought about playing war instead of indian and pirate and bandit with fierce raids on peach orchards and melon patches mark twain's brief career as a soldier exhibited as we see just the characteristics of a throwback a reversion to a previous infantile frame of mind was the apparent control which he had established over his life merely illusory then no it was real enough as long as it was fortified by the necessary conditions had those conditions continued a little longer one feels certain that self-control would have become organic and mark twain would never have had to deny free will would never in later years have been led to assert so passionately that man is a mere chameleon but the habit of moral independence of self-determination was so new to this man who had passed his whole adolescence in his mother's leading strings the old dependent chaotic haphazard pioneer instinct of his childhood so deep-seated that the moment these fortifying conditions were removed he slipped back into the boy he had been before he had lost his one opportunity the one guideway that western life could afford the artist in him for four years his life had been motivated by the ideal of craftsmanship nothing stood between him now and a world given over to exploitation a boy just out of school it was in this frame of mind committing himself gaily to chance that he went west with his brother orion to the nevada goldfields one recalls the tense passionate young figure of the pilot house exhorting his brother to take up a line of action and follow it out in spite of the very devil jotting in his notebook eager and confident reflections on the duty of taking hold of life with a purpose in these words from roughing it 
he pictures the change in his mood Quote, nothing helps scenery like ham and eggs ham and eggs and after these a pipe an old rank delicious pipe ham and eggs and scenery a downgrade a flying coach a fragrant pipe and a contented heart these make happiness it is what all the ages have struggled for End quote. a downgrade going west he is on the loose you see that will that purpose have become a bore even to think about and who could wish him less human only one who knows the fearful retribution his own soul is going to exact of him he is innocently frankly yielding himself to life unaware in his joyous sense of freedom that he is no longer really free that he is bound once more by all the compulsions of his childhood but now in order to understand what happened to mark twain we shall have to break the thread of his personal history the influences about the human being he wrote years later create his preferences his aversions his politics his tastes his morals his religion he creates none of these things for himself that as we shall see was mark twain's deduction from his own life consequently we must glance now at the epic and the society to which at this critical moment of his career he was so gaily so trustfully committing himself what was that epic it was the round half-century that began in the midst of the civil war reached its apogee in the seventies and eighties and its climacteric in the nineties of the last century with the beginning of the so-called progressive movement and came to an indeterminate conclusion by the kindness of heaven shortly before the war of nineteen fourteen it was the epoch of industrial pioneering the gilded age as mark twain called it in the title of his only novel the age when presidents were businessmen and generals were businessmen and preachers were businessmen when the whole psychic energy of the american people was absorbed in the exploitation and the organization of the material resources of the continent and business enterprise was virtually the only recognized sphere of action one recalls the career of charles francis adams a man of powerful individual character he was certainly intended by nature to carry on the traditions of disinterested public effort he had inherited from three generations of ancestors casting about for a career immediately after the civil war however he was able to find in business alone as he has told us in his autobiography the proper scope for his energies surveying the whole field he says instinctively recognizing my unfitness for the law i fixed on the railroad system as the most developing force 
and largest field of the day and determined to attach myself to it and how fully by the end of his life he had come to accept the values of his epic in spite of that tell-tale otherwise mindedness of his we can see from these candid words as to politics it is a game art science literature we know how fashions change what i now find i would really have liked is something quite different i would like to have accumulated and ample and frequent opportunity for doing so was offered me one of those vast fortunes of the present day rising up into the tens and scores of millions what is vulgarly known as money to burn i would like to be the nineteenth century john harvard the john harvard of the money-bags if you will i would rather be that than be historian or general or president less than ever then after the civil war can america be said to have offered a career open to all talents it offered only one career that of sharing in the material development of the continent into this one channel passed all the religious fervor of the race i have spoken of mark twain's novel it is not a good novel it is artistically almost an unqualified failure and yet as inferior works often do it conveys the spirit of its time it tells that is to say a story which in default of any other and better might well be called the odyssey of modern america philip sterling the hero is in love with ruth bolton the daughter of a rich quaker and his ambition is to make money so that he may marry her and establish a home philip goes west in search of a coal mine he is baffled in his quest again and again he still had faith that there was coal in that mountain he had made a picture of himself living there a hermit in a shanty by the tunnel perhaps some day he felt it must be so some day he would strike coal but what if he did would he be alive to care for it then no a man wants riches in his youth when the world is fresh to him philip had to look about him he was like adam the world was all before him where to choose routed by the stubborn mountain he persists in his dream again he goes back to it and toils on three or four times in as many weeks he said to himself am i a visionary i must be a visionary his workers desert him after that philip fought his battles alone once more he begins to have doubts i am conquered i have got to give it up but i am not conquered i will go and work for money and come back and have another fight with fate ah me it may be years it may be years and then at last when the hour is blackest he strikes the coal a mountain full of it 
philip in luck we are told had become suddenly a person of consideration whose speech was freighted with meaning whose looks were all significant the words of a proprietor of a rich coal mine have a golden sound and his common sayings are repeated as if they were solid wisdom triumphant philip goes back to ruth and they are married and the gilded age is justified in its children am i wrong in suggesting that this is the true folk odyssey of our civilization it is the pattern one might almost say of all the stories of modern america and what distinguishes it from other national epopees is the fact that all its idealism runs into the channel of money-making mr lowes dickinson once commented on the truly religious character of american business the gilded age enables us to verify that observation at its source for all the phenomena of religion figure in philip's search for the coal mine he lives in the faith of discovering it he sees himself as another adam as a hermit consecrated to that cause he thinks of money as the treasure you long for in your youth when the world is fresh to you he invokes providence to help him find it he speaks of himself in his ardent longing for it as a visionary he speaks of fighting his battle alone of another fight with fate this is not mere zeal one observes not the mere zeal of the mere votary it is quite specifically the religious zeal of the religious votary and as philip sterling is to himself in the process so he is to others in the event the words of a proprietor of a rich coal mine have a golden sound and his common sayings are repeated as if they were solid wisdom the hero in other words has become the prophet we can see now that during the gilded age at least wealth meant to americans something else than mere material possession and the pursuit of it nothing less than a sacred duty one might note in corroboration of this an interesting passage from william roscoe thayer's life and letters of john hay Quote, that you have property is proof of industry and foresight on your part or your father's that you have nothing is a judgment on your laziness and vices or on your improvidence the world is a moral world which it would not be if virtue and vice received the same rewards this summary though confessedly crude may help if it be not pushed too close to define john hay's position the property you own be it a tiny cottage or a palace means so much more than the tangible object with it are bound up whatever in historic times has stood for civilization so an attack on property 
becomes an attack on civilization here surely we have one of those supremely characteristic utterances that convey the note of whole societies that industry and foresight are the cardinal virtues that virtue and vice are to be distinguished not by any intrinsic spiritual standard but by their comparative results in material wealth that the institution of private property is bound up with whatever in historic times has stood for civilization barring of course the teachings of jesus and buddha and francis of assisi and most of the art thought and literature of the world is a doctrine that can hardly seem other than eccentric to any one with a sense of the history of the human spirit yet it was the social creed of john hay and john hay was not even a business man he was a poet and a man of letters when tolstoy said that quote, property is not a law of nature the will of god or a historical necessity but rather a superstition end quote. he was expressing in a somewhat extreme form the general view of thinkers and poets and even of economists during these latter years a view the imaginative mind can hardly do other than hold it is very significant therefore to find american men of letters opposing by this insistence upon the supremacy of material values what must have been their own normal personal instinct as well as the whole tendency of modern liberal culture for john hay was far from unique even walt whitman said democracy looks with suspicious ill-satisfied eye upon the very poor and on those out of business she asks for men and women with occupations well off owners of houses and acres and with cash in the bank industry and foresight devoted to the pursuit of wealth here one has at once the end and the means of the simple universal morality of the gilded age and he alone was justified to him alone everything was forgiven who succeeded the following dialogue wrote dickens in his american notes i have held a hundred times is it not a very disgraceful circumstance that such a man as so-and-so should be acquiring a large property by the most infamous and odious means and notwithstanding all the crimes of which he has been guilty should be tolerated and abetted by your citizens he is a public nuisance is he not yes sir a convicted liar yes sir he has been kicked and cuffed and caned yes sir and he is utterly dishonorable debased and profligate yes sir in the name of wonder then what is his merit well sir he is a smart man smartness was indeed for the gilded age the divine principle that moved the sun and the other stars 
we cannot understand this mood this creed this morality unless we realize that the businessmen of the generation after the civil war were essentially still pioneers and that all their habits of thought were the fruits of the exigencies of pioneering the whole country was in fact engaged in a vast crusade that required an absolute homogeneity of feeling almost every american family had some sort of stake in the west and acquiesced naturally therefore in that worship of success that instinctive belief that there was something sacred in the pursuit of wealth without which the pioneers themselves could hardly have survived without the chance of an indeterminate financial reward they would never have left their homes in the east or in europe without it they could never under the immensely difficult conditions they encountered have transformed as they so often did the spirit of adventure into the spirit of perseverance what kept them up if it was not the hope hardly of a competence but of a great wealth faith in the possibility of a lucky strike the fact that immeasurable riches lay before some of them at least that the mountains were full of gold and the lands of oil that great cities were certainly destined to rise up some day in this wilderness that these fertile territories these great rivers these rich forests lay there brimming over with fortune for a race to come that vision was ever in their minds and since through private enterprise alone could that consummation ever come for the group spirit of the colonist had not been bred in the american nature private enterprise became for the pioneer a sort of obligation to the society of the future some instinct told him to the steady welfare of his self-respect that in serving himself well he was also serving america to the pioneer in short private and public interests were identical and the worship of success was actually a social cult it was a crusade i say and it required an absolute homogeneity of feeling we were a simple homogeneous folk before the civil war and the practical effect of pioneering and the business regime was to keep us so to prevent any of that differentiation that evolution of the homogeneous into the heterogeneous which since herbert spencer stated it has been generally conceived as the note of true human progress the effect of business upon the individual has never been better described than in these words of charles francis adams i have known and known tolerably well a good many successful men big financially men famous during the last half-century and a less interesting crowd i do not care to encounter not one that i have ever known would i care to meet again either in this world or the next 
nor is one of them associated in my mind with the idea of humor thought or refinement a set of mere money-getters and traders they were essentially unattractive and uninteresting why this is so mr herbert crowley has explained in the promise of american life a man's individuality is as much compromised by success under the conditions imposed by such a system as it is by failure his actual occupation may tend to make his individuality real and fruitful but the quality of the work is determined by a merely acquisitive motive and the man himself thereby usually debarred from obtaining any edifying personal independence or any peculiar personal distinction different as american business men are one from another in temperament circumstances and habits they have a way of becoming fundamentally very much alike their individualities are forced into a common mold because the ultimate measure of the value of their work is the same and is nothing but its results in cash such is the result of the business process and the success of the process required during the epoch of industrial pioneering a virtually automatic sacrifice of almost everything that makes individuality significant you no longer count is the motto a french novelist has drawn from the european war he means that in order to attain the collective goal the individual must necessarily submerge himself in the collective mind that the mental uniform is no less indispensable than the physical it was so in america in the gilded age the mere assertion of individuality was a menace to the integrity of what is called the herd how much more so that extreme form of individuality the creative spirit whose whole tendency is skeptical critical realistic disruptive it is no wonder consequently as mr crowley says that the pioneer democracy viewed with distrust and aversion the man with a special vocation and high standards of achievement in fact one was required not merely to forego one's individual tastes and beliefs and ideas but positively to cry up the beliefs and tastes of the herd end of chapter three part one recording by lucretia b